Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Late Sub, a show where we break down the biggest news in women's sports every week. It is Monday, February 12th. Would be remiss probably to uh, go any further without saying congratulations to NWSL owner Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, who won the Super Bowl last night. Fun fact, Patrick Mahomes has never not won the Super Bowl after investing in an NWSL team. So that's hard data. Other people in the NFL should probably take note. Uh... The U.S. Women's National Team has a roster that's come out. We're going to talk about that. The WNBA picture is coming into view, which is great. Uh, we are still on Caitlin Clark Watch 2024. Uh, the NCAA women's basketball landscape is always changing. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but before we jump into the A Block, I just want to say thanks to everybody for your response to our first episode last week. Uh, the response couldn't have been more positive. Really, really excited to keep this thing going. Um, and I just appreciate every single view, every single comment, every single engagement uh, makes us feel feel good about what we're doing here. So let's continue to build on it. So let's jump into the A block here. The U.S. Women's National Team is back. This is going to be their first competition of 2024. They did not have a January camp, which is slightly unusual for them. So we haven't seen them since December and the first roster back is a big one. It is for a new international tournament, the inaugural CONCACAF W Gold Cup, which is a little bit different than people might be familiar with the She Believes Cup, which is a friendly tournament that the U.S. usually plays in the early part of the calendar year. They will still do that in April, but this is an actual competitive international tournament for the CONCACAF region and the Comitable region in South America. So this is basically a built-up international tournament based around teams in the Western Hemisphere, maybe think something more like the UEFA Euros. I think it's really positive that we're having this tournament. I am a big fan of building up programming that is more than just a World Cup, more than just an Olympics, and also more than just some of these larger footballing countries hosting friendly tournaments. I think that these other teams get a chance. I mean, the U.S. is hosting this one, but hopefully it will get spread out around a little bit more. But I do like how this builds things up for the region. It gives other countries a reason to program. Um, a number of North and Central American countries went through qualifying for this tournament, which I think is a big positive. But what does that mean for the U.S., right? The U.S. is considered dominant in the CONCACAF region. They don't lose CONCACAF tournaments frequently. Um, usually we see them play a team like Canada in the finals. Those are usually competitive and exciting. We're going to see other top nations that people might be familiar with from the 2023 World Cup in this one, including Brazil and Colombia. So we're seeing teams that the U.S. has played pretty regularly, and it gives us a chance to kind of put a stamp on, okay, let's see how these teams shake up together in this Western Hemisphere international tournament. I'm excited for the Gold Cup. But this is also an interesting point for the U.S. in their larger arc towards this year's Olympics. They're going to want to win this tournament. There's going to be an expectation of, again, dominance in this region. It, the games are going to be really competitive. I mean, I think everyone saw what Colombia was able to do uh, at the World Cup last year, though they're going to be missing a number of their top players just due to some of the idiosyncrasies of the international calendar. The Gold Cup does go into... Uh, it goes outside of the international window. So there are some players who are not going to be participating, but we always know how well Brazil can play. Um, I'm excited to see the steps forward, hopefully, that Mexico has taken. Uh, the U.S. will play Mexico, Argentina, and either Guyana or Dominican Republic in the group stage. So this is going to be about winning, but it's also going to be about roster evaluation. As people might know, here's just a quick kind of state, state of the United Women's National Team. 
uh, United States women's national team, uh, had a disappointing 2023. Everyone will remember that. They uh, had their worst ever showing at the World Cup. They did not make it out of the round of 16. The aftermath of that was the resignation of manager Vladko Andonovsky and the hiring of current Chelsea FC manager Emma Hayes to take over the team at the end of Chelsea's season. So where we are right now is we're doing roster evaluation under interim manager Twyla Kilgore, who will join Hayes' staff when Hayes is able to come over and take over the U.S. job full-time. There's been some collaboration between Kilgore and Hayes. Kilgore went over to London. They've taken meetings together. I do believe that when they make these roster decisions, they are collaborative. But I also do kind of take them at their word that for right now, this is Kilgore's project. And in May, it will become Hayes' project, which puts the U.S. in an interesting position where there's going to be a lot of roster evaluations, but I'm not anticipating big decisions being made until right before the Olympics, which is kind of tricky. It's kind of nerve wracking. This was similar to what they had to do last year when Andonovsky really only had NWSL games to go off of before um, naming the World Cup roster because they just had those April friendlies and that was it. So this is a roster with bubble players on it. Let's just say that. And also there's going to be a certain amount of a core here, but let's, let's go through the roster itself. And I think some of the themes will become apparent once we say these names. So three goalkeepers, we've got Jane Campbell, Casey Murphy, and Alyssa Nair. Eight defenders, Alana Cook, Abby Dahlkemper, Tierna Davidson, Crystal Dunn, Emily Fox, Naomi Gurma, Casey Kruger, and Jenna Nyswanger. The midfielders are Corbin Albert, Sam Coffey, Lindsay Horan, Rose Lavelle, Olivia Moultrie, and Emily Sonnet. Six forwards, Mia Fischel, Mitch Purse, Trinity Robin, Jaden Shaw, Sophia Smith, Lynn Williams. And I think there's a lot to dig into the players that are on this roster, and we will certainly do that probably more once we see them play some games but there is a theme of who is not on this roster, right? We're not seeing veterans like Alex Morgan, Becky Sauerbrunn, Kelly O'Hara, Christy Mewis, Sofia Huerta, Ashley Sanchez, and Andy Sullivan. There are a number of, of names that people recognize that are not on this roster. 21 of the 23 players called up to this tournament played in December. I think we had a longer discussion there of should we be worried about veteran absences in December. I think the answer was kind of no. At the end of a calendar year, especially a World Cup calendar year, players need a break. Now we're looking a little bit more into, okay, which players are being told that they need to thrive in their club environments before they're being brought back into a U.S. Women's National Team uh, camp. Kilgore said to the media last week, she said, you know, every player is still in contention, and I do think that's true. The The, the tale I go back to is, is if we look at a player like Alex Morgan, she was left off of the 2022 She Believes roster. She played incredibly well for the San Diego Wave in the NWSL in 2022, in part there was a, an injury to Katarina Macario that made a shakeup in the U.S. front line, but also just Alex Morgan played incredibly well. She worked her way back into the team and was a consistent starter all the way through 2023. But it does take that. I think a player perhaps like Ashley Sanchez, who is in a new club environment, they the U.S. is going to be looking for what happens in the NWSL from the middle of March, probably to the, the middle of May. And I think that's a, a good challenge for players, but I think at this point you do have to consider it to be something of a notice of we know how you can play in the environment, but we need to see how you can play right now and what your form looks like. Because as people know, there were certain players that had issues with form late into 2023. And I think there's going to be a little bit of an impetus to make some shakeups in the United women's national team roster after a, a disappointing 2023. So let's talk about the players that are actually on this roster. A couple of notes 
Uh, Alyssa Thompson of Angel City, she's dealing with a minor back injury. That's why she is not on the roster. That is not a form issue. That was about a minor issue, a minor injury. Crystal Dunn was also dealing with a minor injury in December. She's back. So that is not a player right now that I think the U.S. is constructing uh, a narrative of needing uh, form to change. So she is a player that came back because of injury. Alyssa Nair, obviously another player that comes in, big veteran piece for that team. Seven players on this roster have seven or fewer caps. And I think, especially if you look positionally at the midfield, I think we're going to see some really interesting things in the United States midfield during this tournament. They brought three players that have a lot of international experience and three players that have very little international experience. Sonnet, Lavelle, Haran, if they run out of midfield like that 4-3-3 that we're used to having, we're used to seeing them do, you see Haran, Sonnet, Lavelle, you think, uh, you know, we've seen this before. This isn't that exciting. But it's intriguing to think of Albert, Coffee, and Moultrie getting looks. And I think if you're looking for true bubble players on this roster, players that are perhaps positionally in contention for an Olympic look, you do have to look at that defensive midfield of the United States. As people recall, uh, last year they, or gosh, going back to 2021, 2022, 2023, they're trying to build into their their tactics this idea of okay we're going to have a singular number six which is the defensive midfielder we're going to try to replace julie Ertz, who people remember was a wrecking ball in that position in, in 2019 they don't really succeed in doing that they bring andy sullivan in uh sam coffee gets some looks those are two very different players than julie Ertz. julie Ertz herself comes back in 2023 then andonovsky places her at center back they still have sort of this void in the number six role and now I think they still have to reevaluate that until Emily Sonnet comes in and plays hero in the Sweden game in a dual number six system with Sullivan. So if you're thinking this is all really confusing, I agree. I don't know exactly what we're going to see from this midfield. I would assume we're going to see three players in the midfield based on the people who were called up. Sam Coffey can play in the lone number six. I assume they're also going to be using Emily Sonnet in that role. She's been doing very well there. It's interesting that she is now sort of the new option where I don't think people consider that to be an option before the 2023 World Cup. It's interesting how quickly continuity changes, right? We are, are used to seeing certain things from the U.S. Women's National Team. And another thing that we're used to seeing is quick changes that we run with for a long time. So Sonnet being sort of this permanent option in the defensive midfield is, is really interesting to me. And I'm fascinated to see if they play her with a player like Sam Coffey or if they tell Sam Coffey to go play a Sonnet and or Ertz like role on her own. Moultrie and Albert are younger. I have to think for them, this is about like creativity. Let's see how they build chemistry with the midfield. Let's see how they possess, how they pass. Uh, Albert was shouted out by Kilgore as having a certain amount of versatility. She can play a number of different midfield roles. Fascinated to see how all that works out. So the interesting parts of this roster will have a lot to do with who gets time on the field together as much as the group itself, which leads us to this larger question of what should we think of the U.S. right now? What is the, the way that the U.S. would like to play? Are we going to see a lot of change? Are we going to see more consistency? After the 2023 World Cup, Kilgore had the task of, I think, emotionally lifting the team. They wanted to get some wins underneath their belt. 
They had to say goodbye to some legends. They said goodbye to Ertz. They said goodbye to Megan Rapinoe. And then the work truly began of how do we evolve? How do we remain competitive? How do we do better than we did last year? Some of that occurred in, in December. We saw some slight tactical tweaks where the, the U.S. got more numbers forward in possession. They uh, utilized a three-back wing-back system when they were in possession and then dropped into more of a traditional 4-3-3 out of possession. Little changes, little tweaks. I don't know if this particular tournament is going to showcase large changes, not only because Hayes is not there, but also because many of these players have been in the offseason since November, or if they didn't make the playoffs since October. And the U.S. never looks particularly sharp at the beginning of each calendar year. So I think there's going to be some growing pains. I think we're going to see the U.S. Women's National Team look a little bit like a blank canvas. There's going to be some combinations of players that people are not used to seeing. But in a way, I think that's exciting. I think everybody knows what some of the the exciting points of the end of last year were. It was Jaden Shaw. It was Mia Fischel. It was the return of Abby Dahlkemper. I think that one is really underrated when you look at the stability of the central defense. This team is going to be set up to perform well, but people are going to be looking for more than that after a disappointing year. So I'm excited to see what happens. We'll get into it more uh, as the tournament progresses. Like I said, I think what people should look out for is, is this a Hayes team? Is this a Kilgore team? Are we seeing players audition for roles that other players have played in the past? Or are we seeing an evolution of the team with newer players involved? And I think we it's also, uh, we'll, we'll get to this at the end of the episode, but I think it will be fascinating also to see how leadership roles expand, how players with a lot of international experience are able to impart those mentality pieces and instructional pieces to other players. And I'm just excited to see some, uh, some younger U.S. players go out and ball because that's not always part of the culture of the team. And I think that it's really important to infuse some of that youthful creativity into the squad. Again, we saw that in 2022. Um, and then one final note, speaking, speaking of, Mallory Swanson is going to be making her return to a U.S. Women's National Team environment in this camp. She is not going to participate in the games, but she is going to train with the team up until the beginning of the tournament. She's doing that alongside Giselle Thompson and Savannah DeMello. This is kind of to my point of there are going to be a number of players kind of lurking in the background of this roster. You can take things at face value where players are going to be auditioning for larger roles, but I do think we're going to see more uh, more veterans come back in after this tournament is over. And I think things are going to get real at the She Believes Cup in April. And I think things are going to get really real when Haves arrives, probably in, in either at the in the middle or at the end of May. So exciting stuff. Uh, the tournament starts on February 20th. It runs uh, through the first week of March. And I can't wait to see it. I, I, I'm really excited for this. I love competitive games. I love building up programming. And I love seeing new combinations of U.S. Women's National Team players play together. So that is the world of soccer, international soccer. People know NWSL is in preseason. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of updates there. Um, the NWSL season is sneaking up, guys. It's going to be the middle of March. Middle of March. Coming up. Do you want to dive deeper into women's sports news of the week? You can get the latest news delivered straight into your inbox. 
That's right. You can start your morning off right five days a week with the Just Women's Sports newsletter, our free daily newsletter that brings you the latest and greatest in women's sports. Whether it's breaking news, exclusive conversations, or just a cool stat that you might be missing, we've got you covered. So never miss a story on women's sports. You can subscribe for free at justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. That's justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. And we'll see you in your inbox. But I do want to talk about basketball now. I want to talk about the WNBA. Uh, You guys probably listened to our segment on the WNBA last week, which was just kind of funny timing. Things moved very quickly after we recorded that episode on Monday. The exciting thing now is we kind of get to look at where these teams are are building and we're seeing some of these rosters come into view where we can start to put these teams into different sort of tiers of ambition and, and roster building. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a divide. It feels like the WNBA this season is very, are you in or are you out? Which is maybe fitting for uh, uh, the two-time reigning Las Vegas Aces. You're either in sort of this win-now mode, you're rebuilding the roster, you're trying to contend with the two uh, most successful teams last year, which were Vegas and New York, or you are committing to the full rebuild. Going back to the Aces, they have re-signed former MVP Candace Parker to a one-year deal. I think there was some question of how Parker was feeling physically. She missed uh, a significant portion of the season last year due to injury. She feels good physically. She's rejoining the team. The Aces are running it back. No reason not to. That team is incredibly talented, good vibes, very well coached. There's no reason to think that they can't not only contend for a championship this year, but also be the front runner. So they're running it back. So everyone else is going to have to match the Aces energy this year. The Liberty also pretty much running it back. We're going to see, uh, we're expecting to see Brianna Stewart back, John Quill Jones. They're going to run on coherence, chemistry. They've got a good coach. I think they believe that they didn't get enough time with that project last year. They're going to keep pushing that project this year with the talent that they have, which is exciting. Also, kind of taking that tact is the Connecticut Sun. They have re-signed Brianna Jones. They have re-signed Dewana Bonner. The Sun, again, uh, taking that core trio of those two and Alyssa Thomas, running it back, sticking with what they have, continuing to contend. So who's been aggressive, though, in the offseason? There were some teams that are used to making the playoffs that did not make the playoffs in 2023. I think specifically, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but again, we, we've got some bigger picture stuff here, the Seattle Storm and the Phoenix Mercury. They both missed the playoffs last year. That's not something that they're used to. They're used to contending for titles. And they've made some big moves to be back in that upper echelon of the league. The Storm have signed Neka Ogumike and Skylar Diggins-Smith. They're building around 2023 leading scorer Jewel Lloyd and Senator uh, Ezi Magbagor. That's going to be a very good team. It's well-balanced. They've got clear roles. I think sometimes we see teams collect talent that is available without thinking about the way they're going to play together. I think the really exciting thing about the Storm is not only are these all very talented players, but really clear roles going into Noel Quinn's system. The Storm are going to be contending again. Mercury, similarly, did not make the playoffs last year, and they've actually had a, a rough couple of years after losing in the 2021 finals to the Chicago Sky, which is actually, it's a good segue there, because they made one of the most surprising trades of the offseason last week with Chicago. So they've already re-signed Diana Taurasi. They've signed Natasha Cloud. And they traded for 2021 WNBA Finals MVP Kalia Copper. 
So this is also a team where the starting lineup is starting to really make sense. We're starting to understand different roles. We've got the point guard. We've got our forwards. The final big piece is going to be re-signing Brittany Griner, which hasn't happened yet. I keep saying this. Uh, Griner in her personal life has not indicated that she has any desire to move away from Phoenix, to move away from the Mercury. I do think it's interesting that that deal has not gotten done yet. But of course, I'm saying this now on Monday. By the time this comes out, maybe maybe that, that piece of business will be done. So these are two teams that had lottery picks in the 2024 WNBA draft. They have moved those picks. They have signed top talents, top veteran players. This is win now mode for the Storm and the Mercury. But there's only room for so many, right? Only room for so many win now teams. So who are the rebuilders? Who is being aggressive in the other direction, perhaps? moving out larger contracts with the understanding that they're going to have to go all in on drafting, signing off of waiver wires, training camp contracts to build something over the next couple of years. We got to look to the sky, right? Well, (laughs) no pun intended. Look to the Chicago sky. Uh, They, since winning the 2021 championship, have moved all of those starters out either through free agency where the, the players leave of their own accord or this trade with Copper, uh, Annie Costabile of the Sun-Times did report that this was a request by Copper, kind of this final acquiescence to we're not in win-now mode. This is something that's going to take a number of years to rebuild. Let's move into a different... They they needed to get draft stock back, and Copper requested out. Um, another topic that comes up a lot in the WNBA is facilities and resources, and Chicago is known for not having their own training facility like some of these other... Uh, other teams do. Players are looking for good situations, not only on the court, but off the court. They want to have the resources to contend. And I think we're seeing Chicago lose out on some of that. This guy are also just a little bit uh, victims of their own previous off seasons. They made a deal last off season to bring in Marina Mabry. This moved a ton of draft stock out. They did not have picks in 20. They did not have a first round pick in 2024. They still are stuck in this deal to swap picks possibly with Dallas in 2025. And they're picking up when they, when they did the trade with Phoenix for copper, they, they picked up a 2026 first round pick as well. So now Chicago has dealt back into the 2024 lottery. They've got now, now got the third pick in the draft, but they put themselves in a position where they had to send a very good player out just to contend to get some of these assets back that they had already moved. So this is how you can see a team get stuck in win now mode struggle to actually put that into effect, maybe lose out in the free agency market because you don't have the resources to compete. And then you have to move into the rebuild. I'm kind of, I I live in Chicago. I I tell people I'm a sky fan. I'm kind of excited to see what they do this year. Um, Their new coach tree, the Weatherspoon is uh, is fantastic. And so I I'm interested to see, I think they're going to be kind of a, a rebuilding scrappy team. Fascinated to see what they do this year. And then the other team that seems to be certainly in selling mode in rebuild mode and got a little bit stuck this week were the Washington Mystics. So people might recall that the Mystics had placed a core designation on former MVP Elena De La Dawn. There had been some reporting that maybe she was interested in going to a different team. Uh, but it was reported this week by Ramona Shelburne of ESPN that she is actually stepping away from basketball for the foreseeable future. It's unclear how long De La Dawn will be away from the league, away from the sport. But the behind the scenes of this, I think, showcases one particular mechanism in the WNBA offseason that is meant to 
give teams a leg up in the free agency market and seem to have backfired here. We don't know all the specifics, but Shelburne reported that Deladon was unsure kind of what her future held after the 2023 season. This is a player that has dealt with injuries. She has a lot going on off the court as well. She tells this to the Mystics, and the response is to place her under this core designation, which is basically a franchise tag. So if you have a player that can leave in free agency, there is this mechanism in the WNBA where teams can core them, which is a mandatory one-year Supermax qualifying offer, essentially. By making that offer, you are taking this free agent off of the free agency market, and they can only negotiate with the team that they were already playing for. So exclusive negotiating rights for the Mystics in this case with De La Don. Now, the Mystics did this probably not because they thought, I'm sure they were hopeful that they could convince De La Don to, to return. Maybe it was just sort of a face value, okay, one-year deal, one-year Supermax deal, or sign-in trade. We actually saw, already saw one of those this offseason when um, the Sparks did this with Jordan Canada. They signed her to a core deal. They did a sign-in trade with the Atlanta Dream. But the market didn't really present itself for De La Don. When you put a core designation on, a player has the option to just go ahead and sign that Supermax. So that's a big contract that you have to move. Or they can negotiate it down to a longer deal. They can make it multi-year. It doesn't have to be at a Supermax. But then you're also putting a player in a difficult position where maybe if they're hoping for a trade, do they sign a, uh, a less lucrative contract in order to make that possible? That's a tricky thing to ask a player to do. And then also, like we said, you talk about what the Mercury gave up for uh, for Copper. They gave up two players, a lottery pick in 2024. That was a big move for a player who is younger than De La Don and it has fewer health issues than De La Don does um, on the court. And I think that move was a good indicator of what teams were willing to give up for certain types of players. And if De La Don wanted to move to a contender like Phoenix, like Vegas, I, I don't know exactly who was on her wish list, but Vegas can just go ahead and sign Parker, right? Unrestricted free agent. Or Phoenix makes this deal for Kalia Copper. And the downside of the core designation is it asks teams not only can you sign a player of De La Don's stature with whatever cap room you have, it's asking for additional assets to send to Washington. So even if Phoenix had the cap room or even if Vegas had the cap room or any of these other contending teams had room for a player like De La Don, maybe they weren't so willing to give up additional assets because of this core designation. And so you hope certainly that a player like De La Don is making this choice because she's been empowered to do so. And this is a decision that she has made with her family off the court doesn't have to do with the contract negotiations that she's found herself with, with the mystics. But the concern is that because of this core designation mechanism, it really complicated the situation for De La Don and for the mystics. And now she is, <laughs> she is taking time away from, from the sport entirely. And that's sad. And it's also sad for the mystics who I think would like to have assets for a rebuild, but they are not a team with a lottery pick in 2024, which is going to be a very talented draft class. And they lost a player like Natasha Cloud in free agency anyway. They let Cloud walk to make this uh, this kind of gamble with De La Dawn. So I'm fascinated to see how this works out. I mean, the Mystics are, are a team where people trust this front office, right? Um, 
I, I, they have always been a team that, that makes smart moves. They draft well. They sign well. This has been an interesting offseason for them. And I think if you compare that to the Sky, maybe, or the Sparks, actually. The Sparks are another team that I think has done some really smart moves for rebuilding. They have a lot of draft picks. Um, what contracts are you holding on to? What contracts are you able to move? If you are giving up on the win now, which I think is always tough for fans to swallow, what resources do you have to build for the future? I think we're seeing different teams succeed or, or fail in different ways. So I'm excited for games. I mean, I, I, all this is going to be a common refrain for me. I'm excited. Like I'm excited for us games so we can talk about some games. I'm excited for NWSL. I'm excited for WNBA. Um, it really does feel like it's an, are you in or are you out? And we're seeing teams put talent together to compete with the top two. And I, I can't wait to see it. I, I think some of it's going to work. I think some of it, might uh might not but i think that's always the fascinating part of a wma season and those moves are not done even if it's uh not in preseason i think we're going to see some changes so that's wmba we got one more section for y'all college basketball caitlin clark watch 2024 we are still on we're actually really on the clock here so we're recording on monday the show comes out on wednesday on thursday Clark will be playing against Michigan at home with eight points to go to break Kelsey Plum's NCAA women's basketball D1 scoring record. It's likely at this point that this is going to be the game. We had talked last week about a possibility of it being broken on the 11th. It would have required her averaging, I think, closer to 33 points a game. Didn't quite get there. Um, but she did pass 1,000 career assists against Nebraska on Sunday, becoming only the sixth player in uh, D1 uh, women's college basketball to do so. And she is the only player to score over 3,000 points and notch 1,000 assists, which I think is pretty cool. I, I said this last week. I think that Clark has some fundamentals that are underrated outside of just the scoring. Um, and I kind of liked that when things weren't always landing for her, she wasn't averaging as, as at high a clip as she had been over the last six or so games. She just focused on, on finding the pass and finding the open teammate. However, Sunday was also just a little bit more intriguing than that because Clark did not break the record away at Nebraska, nor did Iowa win the number two ranking curse strikes again. Uh, heaven forbid you get number two because it's, uh, it's a scary, scary uh, designation these days. Iowa lost to Nebraska despite Clark scoring 31 points. Um, it was a really fun game. I watched it right, you know, right before the Super Bowl. It was the counter-programming, midday counter-programming to, to all the football coverage. Um, fun upset, and I think that loss to Nebraska in some ways felt reminiscent of their overtime loss to Ohio State in that we are seeing this Caitlin Clark effect, right? Um, people talk about the ticket prices and people talk about the, the fans coming in to watch the games. Um, this was the largest women's basketball crowd in Nebraska history. But one of the things I think is kind of fun, and this is, you know, I, I, I grew up in Big Ten country. I think that people show up for their own teams is, yes, Iowa fans travel deep and Clark has an appeal to the neutral that goes beyond, um, you know, anyone who might be a fan of a certain Big Ten team. But I also just like how the home crowds show up. I, I think it's cool how Nebraska fans showed up for that game. Or I thought it was cool back when Ohio State fans showed up for, for their game against Iowa. 
I think it was cool. Uh, you know, I'm based in Chicago when the Northwestern fans came out to, to see that game. I think that Clark is not always, it's not like the home games necessarily follow her wherever she goes. I think you see heightened emotions. You see teams raise their level to want to beat this Iowa program. Uh, Ohio State fans stormed the court. Nebraska fans stormed the court on Sunday. Uh, there was a little bit of a dust-up post-game. Iowa head coach Lisa Bluter was was on a hot mic. She was heard complaining about some of the post-game protocol. I think you could tell that Iowa was really frustrated with how that game went. Um, and I think it's just an interesting data point going into March because Clark is she's you know the biggest show in town. But teams are going to raise their level to to play to play a team like Iowa to try to do something like stop Clark from breaking a record. Fans are going to show out, uh, and I just think it's good for for women's basketball as a home as a whole. And I think also it's not the end of the world that Clark is going to have a chance to break this record at home. She's going to have her own day. It's not going to be um, overlooked maybe due to, to the festivities of something like a Super Bowl Sunday. I, I think when you think about the story, I'm sure she wanted to get this out of the way as soon as possible. I've said that before, but I think it's nice that she's going to be able to, to break this record at home uh, based on her current scoring rate, probably in the first half. Uh, I think she's going to be relieved to get it over with. Um, but also, I don't know. Michigan's going to come swinging too, right? I think that anytime you have a player close to a record, you never know if they're going to tighten up a little bit. You never know if the other teams are going to continue to raise their level because they've got a, a certain galvanizing force that they're trying to to contain. Um, but yeah, Thursday, that's going to be on Peacock. Recommend tuning in. History will likely be made. The other big game out of the college basketball weekend is uh, South Carolina, number one South Carolina. We talked about them last week, undefeated, only undefeated team left in Division One basketball. They dismantled UConn, eighty-three to sixty-five. I uh, watched that game as well. It was never particularly close, despite South Carolina missing starting center Camila Cardoso because of international duty. Um, yeah, South Carolina is incredible, man. They. If they aren't working it, if they're not working it in the paint, they're shooting it from behind the arc. They've got inside-outside rotations. They know how to make things work when they're not uh, hitting shots, but on Sunday they were hitting shots. And I think we also just know where UConn is at right now because they've been dealing, they've had five season-ending injuries. I don't know what a reasonable expectation is for UConn this year, but I like that they schedule this game. You know, Gina Ariema versus Don Staley. I think that's fantastic. There's a lot of mutual respect between those two programs. And I also just think it's a good, uh, good litmus test for where some of the shift in top programs in Division One basketball ha- has occurred. In, in the last 10 years, they put a graphic up during the game. They put the graphic up on ESPN, and they were talking about the two teams' winning percentages and, and the two teams' national championships that they've won over the last 10 years. Both of them have won two, uh, and they're comparable NCAA tournament wins, of which there are many. And you look at these two, and it was close, right? It was like, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it was something along the lines of UConn was at like a 0.92 winning percentage, and in South Carolina was like at a 0.89. And and I think they were within five uh, tournament wins of each other, and they had the exact same number of national championships. And I just thought that was an interesting graphic because you could look at that and think, oh, these two programs have always been competitive. They've always been neck and neck. This could be the story of two teams that are always, uh, have always been this way and have always competed with one another. But I think we all know the actual story here is about the rising parody of the sport. UConn, not only having some really tough years recently with injury, but also just recruiting has changed the rise of Don Staley's South Carolina program and how that can shape 
the story of two teams over over 10 years instead of just two teams at the each level you see one becoming closer to the pack and one rising above the pack and i just thought that was an interesting data point because i think 10 years ago if you had said well yukon is going to you know they're only going to have two national championships in the next 10 years or they're they're only going to they're going to be matched in some of these different stats by other programs i think you'd be like that's wild that doesn't make any sense at all they were getting headlines saying they were bad for basketball because they were too good and this is nothing against you know REM's program or or UConn. I think UConn's incredible, but it's it's been really really interesting to see the rise uh, of, of South Carolina and how UConn is dealing with the rising parity in the sport. And obviously, we've seen other changes with NIL opportunities for players and the transfer portal impacts things. And Gino has talked about that many times. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that UConn can make some noise in March. Again, I think this is a difficult season for them. I think they probably are focusing more on individual growth that they can bring into next year. But um, Paige Beckers and Aaliyah Edwards are still excellent. And uh, it was a fun game. But South Carolina, man, they are tough. So to close out on our college basketball segment, I just want to say congratulations to the Ohio State Buckeyes on taking on the number two. Uh, they have to deal with the curse this week. Hopefully they can handle that well. They are now in pole position for the Big Ten Again, I got a cop too. I, I grew up an Ohio State fan, so I, I, I like it that they're doing well. But uh, the number two curse keeps going on. So keep an eye out, guys. If Ohio State loses, curse is real. No one wants to be number two. A couple other headlines I want to touch on before we go. Uh, the Olympic field is set for women's five-on-five basketball. The teams participating will be the U.S., France, Belgium, Nigeria, Australia, Serbia, Japan, Spain, Canada, China, Puerto Rico, and Germany. Uh, the U.S. kind of had some interesting performances this week. They were participating in the Olympic qualifying tournament despite already being qualified. Uh, and they did play against Belgium. And Belgium is a good team. I mean, people know Emma Miesman. People know uh, some players on that team for doing well in the WNBA. But they ha- it took a Brianna Stewart buzzer beater tip in to defeat Belgium in Belgium. It was a great atmosphere. Uh, so I think this is a storyline that we're going to be watching. I think USA basketball Olympic selection is really hard. They have a lot of talented players and I think they struggle with some of the same things that the U S women's national soccer team struggles with, which is how do we get all the best players on the court and what are their roles? And are we running a system or are we taking the most talented players that we have available? And I think that sometimes they, the team USA does really well with that. I think sometimes they struggle with that. Um, they obviously have never lost uh, an Olympic tournament. So fascinated to see how that plays out. In domestic women's soccer news, the USL Super League has been granted Division I sanctioning from U.S. soccer, all of which to say that there will be two fully professional women's domestic leagues in the United States running concurrently. Um, the USL Super League is planning to start in August of 2024. Are they really competing with the NWSL? Certainly for for market share, for attendance, for eyeballs. I just think this is really interesting because there's no clear Division II pipeline right now for players who maybe want to ascend to the NWSL level. And now there's going to be two Division I leagues. I think minimum standards are good. Part of this Division I sanctioning is it, it requires a certain amount of minimum standards for ownership, for market for venue size, a number of different things that I think help promote stability. My my real hope is that the USL Super League and NWSL can can coincide rather than a, a one league taking the shot, taking a shot at truly competing with another more established league. Because at this point the NWSL 
maybe the pockets are too deep. The TV deal is too big. But I'm a little bit of a more is more as well in this context. I think more professional soccer in the United States is good. I think that there are too many talented players to not try to expand that player pool of professionalism. I think there are a lot of markets that would love to have a professional women's soccer team. Uh, and I, and I think it's only good, only good to, to be pushed in that way. And then the one other headline I do want to hit is back to us women's national team, but these are the kids, the U 17s of the U S women's national team won the CONCACAF W championship this week. They did not lose a single game out of five. They scored a lot of goals. And I think the interesting point there, of course, it's great that the U S women's national team is doing well. I think there is an expectation that they will do so at, at the youth level, but especially in, again, that CONCACAF region, as I said, at the beginning of the show, it was cool to see some of these U17 players who have already signed with NWSL clubs play against peers. So a player like Kansas City's Alex Pfeiffer or San Diego's Melanie Barcenas, those players looked really sharp. Um, I got to watch a number of those games and we were seeing creative ideas, sharp passing. Obviously the speed of play at the youth level is not as fast, but I think if you are a youth player or you're someone who's mentoring a youth player or you are uh, it's in your uh, sights to encourage the development of the U.S. player pool from a young age. I think we saw a really interesting data point of these players who are already in pro environments look a step ahead. And that's a much longer conversation that I'm sure we'll get into uh, in the future of, of what are your college prospects? What are your professional prospects? Is it good for these kids to go right into the pros? Do we want to follow that pipeline that we see for the men? But those in charge of the U.S. system, I think, probably are liking what they're seeing from, from the talent ID standpoint and just from the development standpoint. So congrats to the U.S. Women's National Team U-17s. They have qualified for the U-17 World Cup, which will happen later this year. Uh, and I just do wonder if we're going to see a couple more of these U18 signings on the NWSL level, and we're going to see the U.S. maybe really tap in to that talent pipeline uh, using the NWSL to their own advantage for talent ID and for talent development. And then now we have reached the final thought, final thought of the week, final thought of the day. Um, we're bringing it back to the U.S. women's national team. This is more just kind of how I'm feeling about the team. I think we uh, are looking at the team in a new light in 2024. A larger existential question for the U.S. going into this year, um, more than any, really, in the next part of the cycle, because this is a major tournament year, is what does evolution look like for this team? Does it mean that they're allowed to lose some games? The U.S. is not frequently, uh, I mean, allowed is, is is a strong word, but they're not encouraged to invest in the process over results a lot. You don't see that a lot with this team. This was actually probably one of the major issues with the Andonovsky era was there was a high emphasis on winning that maybe papered over the cracks of some of the deeper performance issues. But now, now that they, they struggled in the world cup, the talk is we want to evolve. We want to hold the ball more. We want to take more risks. We want to try the risky pass. We want to build chemistry. We want to be dynamic. We want to, be versatile against different opponents. And what does that look like if you're going into this international tournament that is the Gold Cup, but also a major tournament that is the Olympics? Because I think a lot of the pressure placed internally and externally on the team is not only do they need to evolve, and this is this is the, the tricky thing in front of Emma Hayes and in front of Twilight Kilgore, but they have to evolve while performing better than they did last year. What does that look like? Um, One of the big conversations around the U.S. was an interview that Captain Lindsey Horan 
did with Meg Linehan at The Athletic. There were a number of poll quotes there that I think fans found very interesting, but I had some that I want to focus in on here um, that has less to do with, with the fan base and some of the things she said about American fans, but about the U.S. Women's National Team itself, because I think any time a captain speaks on these issues, it's, it's interesting to kind of see their psyche. And Haran said, we need to get back to the football. The football is the most important thing. Maybe we should knock some of the shit out for now. We need to focus on the game. We need to focus on being the absolute best we can be. We need to be doing everything we possibly can to be improving, to make each other better, holding the standards. We need to change every bit of culture that we had prior to the last World Cup and going into the Olympics because we need to win. And that starts now. I think that is two things at once. I think it's really difficult to evolve and be brave and also win all the time. What does success look like? I think the Andonovsky era of this team was not really defined by taking too many risks or being too loose or too creative. It was kind of the opposite. It was a very risk averse version of this team. They were very defensive. They were very conservatively set up. They wanted to lock the defense down first before generating just enough chances in the attack to move forward. And I think one of the, the truly sad things about the 2023 U.S. Women's National Team is they were so risk averse and so conservative that because they didn't want to make mistakes that would lead to bad outcomes and they still were not able to succeed. So I'm, I'm just curious to see how Kilgore and then Hayes manages this idea that the U.S. needs to lean into creativity. They need to have players that feel empowered, again, to make mistakes, to make risky passes, to shoot the ball. I, I That's one thing I do want to see from this team at the Gold Cup is not overthinking it in the box, not always looking for the perfect pass, getting shots on goal. Um, I think actually not having Morgan there and enforcing some of that forward line to do that on their own is is a big positive um, and then how do you do that while also holding upholding the standard or even raising the standard, right? They're, they've been accused of, of the mentality piece not being there. They've, they've been accused of, of not having the same winning culture that they did in 2015 and 2019. And so what I would like to see what success looks like, in, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, is if they're not going to win this tournament, and I don't think that that should be the be-all, end-all goal, I want to see players empowered to be creative and to be themselves. And I think that will breed uh, chemistry. It will breed continuity. I think it will cut down on mistakes that come from overthinking. And so I think in 2023, it wasn't just that the U.S. failed to win, though obviously that was uh, a very bottom-line failure for the team. But I think people just want to recognize that team again. They want to recognize the competitive fire, recognize the creativity. I think they have the right group for that, for this particular competition. I think they're going to be looking to get that mix right of veteran leadership. I'm interested to see what that means for the veterans that are there. And I think really got bogged down in their decision-making on the, on the field in the Andonovsky era. So for me, would love to see the U.S. win but I don't think that should be the ultimate goal. I think the ultimate goal should be to improve, to see young players step up and do well and compete, which will set them up for the future. And then I think the business of trying to win the Olympics happens later. I think that happens in April and May. So this has been episode two of The Late Sub. Thank you guys so much for listening again. Uh, Love doing this every week. We're going to have more to talk about next week, I'm sure. 
Uh, shout out to producer extraordinaire Parker Fenton. Appreciate her on the call so much. And this has been The Late Up. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.